What's up, everybody? And welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. With me, as always, my right-hand man, Gianni Harrell. What's up, G? What's up, what's up? Podcast 46, on our way to 50. And today we have one of those rare guests that I have this incredible pre-existing relationship with, similar to Jamie Patrickoff, Noah Kerner earlier. But this guest is unique in that uh, he was also someone that I've worked so closely with earlier in my life and probably one of the three most influential and important people in my career because of the belief he uh, instilled in me. So um, let's see, the intros are always weird because I look at these guys' resumes and that's not how I would introduce someone. But what I will say is that this man has won an Academy Award, it says here. I knew that, though. Golden Globe Award. I also knew that. And seven Grammys, one in which I attended with him, so I knew all that. And I think most people know him as a world-renowned producer and DJ. And he is my friend. Welcome to the show, Mr. Mark Ronson. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, when you said the thing about the Grammys, it just suddenly made me flash in my head to that time when we were there. And the first Grammy of the night, that was the year with Amy and Back to Black. And we were standing there in that pre-telecast when you're, it's not the fancy thing on TV, you're on the side room. And they read my name out. It was the first award that I was up for. It was for producer of the year. And I think I was in such a daze and a tiny bit hungover that you had to like, like in the movies, you had to like shake me and be like, yo, dude, they're saying your name. Like you were tapping me because it was so out of body and to win. And, but I really remember you being like, dude, it's, it's you. And like snapping me out of it. Like the kid at school who's like the teacher's calling on them and he doesn't hear it. I remember that so well. That was a very, that, that night and so much of like our early uh, careers together feels so like pure. Like I remember being at the Grammys. I had, you know, horrible seats. You were, you were the producer up yeah. for the award. You had one seat. I think your mom sat with you, obviously. She did, yeah. And of course, like, you know, a small young manager of this, like first time this producer's ever been up for an award like this, I was seated in the boonies and I loved it. Like yeah. suited up. Yeah. I remember running down like literally suited up like a banker at Chase, like yeah. I had the worst suit. And uh, I remember just going over and like hugging the shit out of you and then like running right yeah. back up to the seat. And we yeah. went out that night and we were feeling ourselves. Remember we, we were, were like. That that whole weekend was, was wild. It felt like our arrival in some ways. But I also, yeah, I remember my first Grammys, I wasn't even nominated. I was Rhymefest date because he was up for Jesus Walks and like Nicole Renee or somebody wouldn't go with him. So last minute I got to go with him and he had good seats because Jesus Walks was up for song of the year. And I remember borrowing a cool T-shirt from Jamie Patrickoff. He had a vintage Eddie Murphy raw T-shirt and I sat there, but just as a total like I never made music. I was a, people knew me kind of because I was a DJ, but like it's so amazing those times in the beginning and everything's just exciting and like everything's so new and you're so grateful to be there, you know? Yeah, and, and for that award, I was also there, but if you think my seats were bad for when I was your manager, I was now managing the guy who was sitting with Rhymefest at the awards. I sat with Ron Miner, RIP, yeah. um, to our boy. Um, and that night was incredible too. Like, 
I remember, I mean, I was about 11 times disconnected from that Grammy, Rhyme Fest yeah. writing for Jesus Walks, but I was like, oh, shit, I'm at the Grammys. It was incredible. Um, oh, wait, I, if we're really going to have to one-up you for, like, worst seats at the Grammys, I'm going to have to even go one more level then. <laughs> it, when I was 12 or 13 years old for my high school paper that I wrote for, it, was, it wasn't my particular high school. It was, like, an interest school paper. A lot of the high schools in New York, it just, like, they had it handed out for free. And um, I got – I was a seat filler, which at the Grammys when it was in New York because I wanted to write about the Grammys for this – paper and i was a nerdy kid who liked writing about music and seat filler is the when someone gets up to get an award on tv they have people sit in their seats so when they pan to the audience it doesn't look like empty seats so you're just there going everywhere like you know keith urban gets up and what hurry go to b1 and that was my whole night and it was <laughs> that was the most exciting thing ever to me i was a seat filler at the grammys when i was 13 and i, I just thought it was the coolest thing well, th well, that's because, I mean, it's like sneaking into the garden if you're like a hoop fan. And um, I'm sure you did that, too, as a kid. But so for our people and our audience listening, which are so many people that we both have in common, that's the cool thing about this audience is I've got to realize, like, I'm getting hit up by people I hadn't spoke to in years. Uh, it's cool to know that, like, people that I know well are listening um, except for my wife, who told me she's never listened, but that makes <laughs> sense. She told me that, like, do you understand how nuts it would be if I had to um, listen to you in my ear when you're not here? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for our audience and for G, Mark grew up right in London till you were how old? Till I was eight. And then you moved to New York. And you, you have this incredible family, all of who I'm close with which is really rare you know it's similar kd's family is like that with me you know when you work so closely with someone and you care about the person you just like get enmeshed in their family like um, well because my family all love you also because a anybody that i care about that much has been in my life that long they're gonna unless they think that i'm absolutely crazy and they're just like it's it's gonna be very unlikely that they don't also like that person and you've been there for so much of my family you've always been around i remember you helping out in, in numerous occasions some like really dire and others more just like being a fucking a friend so yeah that's why that's like that yeah no i appreciate you saying that i i do like have such incredible fond memories i remember trying to help charlotte with her clothing line obviously samantha i managed we had such an amazing relationship and your brothers i love um, and your mom i mean my god i've had some of like my most hilarious evenings in new york with your mom and like your birthday at the spotted pig um was amazing you know it's funny i was telling bella the other day because i was at the waverly inn for dinner the other night and i said that's where we asked jan and i asked mark to be your godfather so she's like was there a ceremony there and i was like no she's, so she's like so she was like was there what was there was there like a rabbi or someone or like a pastor i said no and she's like so what'd you do i'm like i think we had just done a few shots i'm like <laughs> and then and then i said mark you ought, and i remember we were going to that dinner and jana had like a little bit of a plan of how she wanted to present it and then i just like was like mark we want you to be uh, the guy i had like totally jumped the gun but he mark mark is also gianni it's pretty amazing um we've been friends since we were young but mark obviously travels the world dj's all over the world has his own life his own family but every time he stops through new york he comes to see my kids and shows up with dope gifts because he's got good taste and style 
uh, most guys, you know, that buy your daughter's gifts or like, you know, buy like a Knicks jersey and think that like a 12 year old girl wants that. But Mark <laughs> comes through with some fly shit. Yeah, some nice Gucci sneakers or something. Yeah. So um, growing up, though, let me, you know, I as a kid, you, know, you had this crew of kids in New York City. You always could tell who the one that was like entrepreneurial or like we talk about this a lot in the show. Those ones that tell those stories about selling trading cards, lemonade stands, hustling, whatever it may be. But then there were the rare ones that, you know, like an athlete that have just a, a gift, a skill and a, and a desire to chase that skill and gift. And especially now, but even back then, like you could have such success early when you have that. Unlike, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, an executive, it's a, it's a, it's a climb. Mm -hmm. Is like soon as the my senior year in high school, I remember knowing about you. You were somebody that like was recognized as cool in the city. You were someone that DJed the cool parties, um, and were thought of as musical. I don't know if you were doing ad, ad, you know, ads yet or not, or modeling. But at what like do you remember a time in your childhood because you're such a driven dude where like it wasn't about loving music. You know, you have your family is in music and has incredible heritage. Is that the right word? Heritage? No. Yeah. Heritage, yeah, right? but yeah, sure. Yeah, that works. Um, but do you remember that time in your life ever? Because you, you must have focused a bit differently where you, you thought music was taking you somewhere and you had a vision of your, of your life and your career. Yeah, I mean, there's so many times, because not to sound corny, but I don't really remember a time when music wasn't the dominant force in my life. But there were so many different ways I went about it because I wasn't like, an incredible prodigy on the piano or the guitar like i was sort of figuring it all out so i loved i loved being around music and thinking and writing about it so i had an internship at rolling stone when i was like 11 12 and 13 and then i had high school bands where i was like kind of like not as good a musician as the rest but i had the drive and i would get us the gigs and then i got really into hip-hop when i was 17 and so I was like, okay, well, I'm not a rapper. I don't know what producing, I didn't know what producing was yet. So I want to become a DJ because that's how I can be in this thing that I love. So it was, it, it were all these moments. I was just probably wasn't quite sure where I fit in yet. So I was just amassing these kind of just like a lot of general knowledge about different shit. And then that, ends up being the best thing to be a producer because that's this producers this vague title but it's somebody who just you just kind of knowing a little bit about all these different things was really helpful for for that when i finally kind of found my role in my mid-20s but when you went to um vassar and you started like djing and, and got more and more recognized as a dj you grew up in on the upper west side of manhattan right and like you know i took advantage of uh, the melting pot that was New York and the access yeah. to going out and meeting people of all different um, backgrounds and environments. But you also simultaneously, like while you were putting this band together through school, you were starting to DJ and, and use hip hop and to venture into these worlds and network at a young age. Was it literally just that? Was it getting into the mix and knowing how to talk and people just gravitating towards you that you were able to at very early days, like, mold these worlds a bit yeah i think so i think i just when you're starting off and you love something so much you're just kind of like no fee is too small no job is too big you know like i was making mixtapes 
um i was working at do you remember slam the hip-hop clothing store on the upper west side it was yeah. like very short-lived yeah, for, yeah. I'd, I'd sell my mixtapes in there i would go to the cool clubs downtown and like pedal my demos and at first they were kind of like you know not really hearing it they're like who's this kid we never heard of so i was mainly djing like not as cool but just you know upper east side upper west side regular parties that were like kind of you know the b-list thing but just to cut your teeth and then yeah i think i was just like i just never remember a time that i just kind of wasn't out there just trying to like pedal my shit whether it was mixtapes or just like getting gigs so and when you came back to the city after school and you got into producing was it was there a did you have a mentor at that point was there someone in the family or did you just buy the machines were you a technical kid that just easily transitioned well uh so i didn't really finish so i i went to i started djing summer my senior year in high school then i went to vassar and i i loved it and i did like the experience of getting out of the city or at least an hour and 40 minutes out of the city but i was also starting to then really DJ a lot and I was starting to DJ underground hip hop parties in New York and I was taking the train back two, three times a week. It was a joke and my studies, my work, schoolwork was kind of shitty. But um, I got this drum machine sampler, the MPC, this classic hip hop drum machine that all my heroes like Q-Tip and Pete Rock and these people used. And I started to just make beats. And I think I taught myself mainly from the manual and then John Forte from the Fugees, you know, from the refugee all-stars, a refugee camp. He showed me a little bit of stuff. We worked together a lot and I learned from him. But really, I kind of just taught myself this machine. John Forte. Yeah, get on the mic and just talk this way. Yeah, shout out John Forte. Um. I Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, like, so, you know, John, I remember clearly being this like very instrumental figure early q-tip also obviously very instrumental was there a model like you know you know i'm not comparing you to the king quincy jones but he compared himself to you in some ways i saw in an article if i prepped i could quote it but was he someone that you modeled or was there these like little short-term kind of benchmark people that you aspired to be and then kept going yeah i mean you definitely have like heroes like people you look up to so for me it would have been like it definitely would have been a quincy jones uh as far as like catalog and kind of just like making so many records i love and being important rick rubin would have been in there and then but it was really like it was really the hip-hop producers of that time pete rock q-tip the rizza those were the people that really I wanted to be like, because that's what I could do with this machine in front of me. Like the idea of like having a career and reaching those people, like that that was a more of a meta, like larger thing. But I wasn't really thinking in those terms. I was like, I just want to make rappers, meet rappers and make beats. So um, I guess that's kind of where I was. And I didn't really know anything about Quincy Jones, like is a master arranger of orchestras and producers of entire bands. And I didn't know how to do any of that at that time. I mean, literally my entire world was just this drum machine and sampler. So when I met Saigon, you know, who we've worked with, that was one of our first artists, you and me. Um, that was like the first person who had the patience to sit with me and I was working on beats. And, and I, I, I know that my stuff wasn't even that great back then. I probably thought it was, but, uh, because you don't have that hindsight, like, hey, in three years, you're going to be there. Like, you can't tell that to a kid when they're doing the thing that they love. They just want it. They want it now. 
But um, yeah, he was the, that was the first artist I worked with on a sort of regular basis and started to really like hone my skills with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I met Nika Costa through Dominic Trenere, you know, and then that was the first artist that, that like a like a true singer that like whose record i first worked on and really spent like every day in the studio for 18 months making a record gianni do you know that song that song by nika costa like a feather that dun 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 did i did i do that well Oh, yeah. I killed it. Yeah, so that I remember that because that's about the time that um, that I came more into your life. You know, I have a question of, before we move on with this like chronological order of the life of Mark Ronson. Is it's funny? I was thinking about this as it related to people saying that Jay Z. A lot of people that think Jay Z's best album is Reasonable Doubt, or that Nas's best album is Illmatic, right? Yeah, is that like? And there are a lot of examples like that of artists or musicians or rock bands that have had their like early work be their best work. But in your case, like you just said that example of like looking back on it and so many, like let me take my example in business. Like I think about things I said in meetings 20 years ago or things that I thought or did. Um, but that's experience in music. Some artists do seems like create their best work early. You don't think you did. Do you, like see how that could happen to an artist earlier in their career? Like how does that kind of come about as a producer? Yeah. Well, I think producers are kind of different than artists in a way because producers in some ways, the more experience you get, the more better you are because you know more about music and arrangement and what to do here. And you have this kind of like, you know, Quincy made off the wall at 40, Thriller at 45. An artist is a little different because we associate the realness and rawness of an artist with like, like unfiltered, right? And that's where you are in your first record. You have no expectations. You don't, you're not, you, you just are giving like the rawest version of you. And you also have your entire life to write your first album. And then you have 18 months to write your second. So I definitely, I understand why for artists, we love the early stuff too, because it is just like, it will never be that raw again, because it just can't be. And a lot of people do improve, but um, there is something very special about Reasonable Doubt and Illmatic and these records that we love. That's that's a really great line, though. Like you have your whole life to record your first album and then basically like a whole handful of headaches and 18 months to record your second. Yeah. Album. Yeah. And these crazy expectations, insecurities, anxieties. And they're like, oh, wait, so they like when I do that because I had that one hit record off my first record. So I'm going to do a whole lot of that now. Like all these things that go into your. Yeah. Um, yeah. Into your the cloud, your creative process. So, you know, I said it in my intro and I say it to anyone I meet and it's getting clearer as I get older, the, the clear people in my life. Like when someone says, who was your mentor? I, I find that odd because I don't have as many, I don't have mentors. I said this, you know, gee, I think I said this like a few pods ago, but you have these people that like believed in you. It's because, you know, mentoring entails, in, you think of them putting their arm around you and teaching you I'm actually getting them now because I'm starting to call on people I admire for mentorship but in your early life it's like you find these people that maybe are ahead of you or have a skill set that you don't have or um, where you compliment one another and they believe in you 
you know, and, and Kevin obviously has been instrumental in that way in my life. And Mark, though, really with nothing, I had no background. I didn't finish school. I didn't, de- I didn't have any skill set except like I could talk and I had some connections to Mark. We weren't friends from like nursery school. Right. But you were really on. And I remember you had an incredible manager already in Dom for your Dominic Trenier for your um, for your producing and art um, as an artist. Damon DeGraff was also your manager as a DJ. But you wanted to start a label. And you asked me to be your partner in this record label. And remember, at this time, even though I was obsessed with sports, I was idolizing these like hip hop labels that were birthing out of New York and seeing these guys just like it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So I was like, I'm in, right? But the belief you had in me and the desire to build a label and your whole vision, I will say, you know, people don't really speak um, about that side of you. You know, I don't think you've ever talked about as much, but even the corporate gigs you take and how you select them, the brands that you work with, how you activate your deals, you are a real business visionary as well. Um, and I'm not saying that selfishly because you said you believed in me as a kid, but when you were building all of this, right. And, and you and I connected, tell me like why you thought I was, to be honest, I not to embarrass myself or you, but why do you think looking back on it, you wanted me to, or what was your memory? Cause I feel like I chased you maybe and hoped that this would happen. But what do you think it was for you that really wanted to work with me and build something? Because from that, before you answer, I also remember saying to you, well, how do I get involved with your DJ management and all this stuff? And you started to slowly let me into more and more. But it started to just build this label with you. Yeah, I just I think part of it is just instinctual, like the same reason that I'm meeting an artist for the first time, whether it's Daniel Merriweather or Amy or something, you just get a feeling, right? But that's also not necessarily, that's not always like a 100% thing that pays off. But I do think that that's something I've learned over the past 25 years that I do trust my instincts. I feel like they're good. You were just like a boss, like you just had this boss energy. And we liked the same music and you love brand Nubian and Pete Rock and CL Smooth. And you were like a New York guy. And you, I could tell you were ambitious and driven. And you already had a a thing going on the 360 portal with Russell. I saw you already kind of doing things in the hip hop space. Um, and I just, I just, I just had a good feeling about it. And yeah. I just, I, and also we had a lot of fucking fun together. Like you said, we hadn't been best friends since the eighth grade, but like we'd hang out and just like laugh and clown and we liked the same shit. And I just knew that you were going to be somebody. I, I thought, you know, I just, it just felt, it felt good. Uh, I didn't question it too much. It yeah, just... and and it gave me it gave me like a a complete like seat at this table as this kid and like getting into clubs on a different level and walking into rooms and being like Mark Ronson's my partner like and that yeah. shit resonated you know Gianni I'm sure you've heard of like what it was like at that time and Mark was really the first of his kind and and DJ AM um, in that. You guys went into these rooms of the greatest mix of people from hip hop, from fashion, from art, from every walk of life. And like we're rock stars, you know, and then that went on to become big club DJs and make tons of money. I mean, it was it was crazy what the kind of money that people were paying for DJs back then. And they called you guys these like celebrity DJs and neither of you were that. You were these celebrities because of your talent and what you guys had done so pioneer 
Um, you know, the things you experience and the network that you created and that I know I was able to create through these experiences were wild. You know, like um, let's we went to Tom Cruise's wedding, Gianni, Mark and I. It was the most surreal thing I had ever done in my life up to that date and probably to this point still in some ways in Rome to Katie Holmes. Um, and Mark got just completely twisted and he was DJing an incredible set for like J-Lo and Jim Carrey. It was wild. But like that time in your I life. I remember that flight, a business flight to like Alitalia, like you and me sitting there, like having like the, the, the little glass of wine to take off. That felt like the pinnacle, like the most you're ever going to make it. Like go flying business and first is, is, is wonderful. And it's something when it starts to happen, you can't believe it. But an international flight like someone is paying for us to go business to europe to do this like it just <laughs> we, were felt, like, we were like crazy yeah. we were eating pasta and like red wine in our seats and passed out it was incredible yeah i, I remember they uh, they did the firework display and it was so ill that no one could see each other at the wedding outside remember that cloud of smoke i don't think we're up? allowed to talk about that I don't give a shit. The I, think we signed is, an, I think we signed an NDA. I don't care because uh, no. you know what else happened? Uh, no, that been... was a great. And then I guess I've told the story before, but I was DJing and I was really like killing it. And it was cool. And I worked out this whole mix. I played the Top Gun theme down over the drums from Holla Back Girl, the Pharrell Gwen joint. Boom, 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 boom. Down, 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 boom. Like, and I, and, and this was like the old school vinyl days. And I'm like keeping the the, the, the tempos right. <laughs> and Rich looks to me. He's like, yo, he's like, Tom's look up. And I was like, I can't, Rich. I got to keep this mix like on track. And you're like, look up. Like Tom's pointing back at you because he was on the dance floor, obviously showing that he appreciated this mix that I was doing. It takes some thought. And he and I look up and he was like, you know, like from the <laughs> dance, from the dance floor. And that, it was just a good night. And I was sort of. I was like, I remember at one point saying to him, like, hey, like, is there this is your wedding? Is there something I can play? He's like, dude, you're just killing it. Like, just keep doing what you're doing. Gold Digger <laughs> was a big song at the time. People went crazy. Um, I was like, I probably shouldn't be playing Gold Digger at a billionaire's wedding. This is this problematic. <laughs> um, but of course, no, we were just it was just great. And so then at the end, when I'm DJing, I'm like kind of having a drink, like nothing. You're on the adrenaline and the, the the rush of DJing, and you're killing it. Like you don't feel anything at that point. But the muse, the minute the music stopped and like the lights went on, I was just suddenly like, oh, <laughs> like I didn't feel I didn't feel anything until like, and they had a, it was this beautiful this beautiful Italian castle, and they served pizzas like at the end like they had this amazing food and you could just get a pizza on the way out i was like i better eat some pizza <laughs> so rich and i get in the car they have a car service to take us from this like you know thing and down these country roads back to our hotel and i think we've made it about seven minutes i'm like rich you gotta tell him to pull the car over <laughs> and uh and he pulls the car and i just get out and i just deliver a pavement pizza to the italian countryside <laughs> He threw up everywhere, man, on the streets. But it was an incredible time. I remember two things before we move on. You, you, I was like, what's up with that guy right there? And you were like, Andrea Bocelli. Remember? I was uh -huh. like, and you were like, he's blind. I like knew nothing. And then I hung strong with Tom's um, and uh, Nicole Kidman's kids at the time. Remember oh, they, you did? You remember they, and then the girl was hanging with you. That was, we were all eating the pizza. I have an amazing memory. Right, right. I wish I remembered some more of this stuff. Even you telling me those a couple stories already tonight that I'm like, man, I forgot. I, my memory is just a little bit uh, 
Yeah. Right. Um, but I the, remember something else at that wedding, and I'm and I'm dead serious. I remember you not caring as much that you were there. And what I mean by that is like it was pretty clear. Like I really didn't have a gauge yet. You know, that was really success. You know, you got paid a lot of money, you paid me a commission, we flew business class, and I always could work a room. So like to my to my extent, I was going and like shaking Jim Carrey's hand for no reason. Mm-hmm. And you were like, I got to get back. I got to work on this album. You know what I'm saying? You had that already. You were starting to get that. And our label, you know, while it was something that I look back on fondly, like neither of us were able to bring it to real fruition because you were the special one. Um, not that our artists weren't special, not that Saigon, Rhymefest, Daniel Merriweather, and everyone we work with, Wale, obviously. Um, but it was like, it was you and it was your time. And looking back on it, you know, I'm like, damn, why, I can't believe I was hounding him about like edits on our Hard Rock Hotel mixtape. You were building this insane career. Yeah, well, we didn't really know. Actually, I just Googled when the wedding was because I want to remember. So it's November 18, 2006. So Back to Black had just come out, but probably hadn't done like much in America yet. It was just still, uh, but it was starting to, it was definitely starting to happen in England. And I was finishing that version album, but like, I didn't know any of these things were going to pop off at all. I just was like, okay, this is something I'm doing and I'm excited about. And I just started to like coming out of this after Nika Costa's album came and it made a buzz, but wasn't like a huge hit. And my solo record came out and didn't do shit. I really kind of went back down and my stock wasn't as hot. And also the DJing, there were some other DJs that come around, some other scenes that were happening in New York. Like I wasn't automatically the guy anymore. And I would also been DJing for 10 years in hip hop clubs in New York. So I was like a little burnt and I started to make some music again, but I was in what you would call like a, like a cold patch. And so that was just coming out of it. And I think that, you know, I had no reason to think like, oh, this shit that I'm working on now is definitely going to blow up. But I was excited. And I think the momentum of Amy, you know, Lily's stuff had come out and done kind of well that Lily Allen Littlest Things was the first song I had produced ever that was like on a on like a on a big record even though it was just a so yeah it was an exciting sort of transitional time but like the bills were still being paid by the corporate parties and DJing the weddings and that stuff you know the production stuff hadn't really taken off like that yet yeah um and you reference back to black and lily so let's obviously talk about this like major shift in your life and you know and i was right there with you watching you was when you produced amy winehouse's album like you said lily allen's album i mean adele was in our studio back at this time um the same studio that mind you mark is now 15 years later building and um and running his entire operation from, which is just incredible because we had such incredible memories there. But that moment was an, a wild time, right? So you, you, how did you first get introduced to Amy again? I know it was from, um, oh my God, don't remind me his name. Uh, you have to, because we're gonna run out of time. It was the bald, Guy Moot. Guy Moot. Bald, incredible man from EMI, Guy Moot. Um, he's probably not at EMI anymore, but. Um, so Amy then came to New York to, um, to work with you. I remember we went to see a, a movie at the Tribeca Film Festival in the first year. And it was at that time that your album version really took off in, in England. Uh, Lily Allen, like you talked about, Amy. Um, what was it about that time, that sound that you kind of represented, that you brought back, that moment 
Um, talk to me about that whole era, right? Because that was the time I was closest to you. And it felt like you then had ascended into this next level. It's when you won the Grammy, obviously, for working with Amy. But who you were and you were no longer like the, you know, the name DJ, which I know we always used to talk about in those like Rolling Stone articles where it would be DJ. And then sometimes you wanted to be producer DJ. And then it was just producer. Then it was Grammy award winning producer. But that whole era for you, do you feel like that will always hold like this most special place in your heart for what it meant for your career? I think so. Definitely. Because I probably just, you know, counted, maybe I counted, not counted myself out, but I, I had resigned myself to maybe like, okay, maybe this music thing isn't going to fully pop off. I, you know, we had the label, I was excited about building that, but you know, my own record hadn't come out. The first record I produced, Nika Costa, that was supposed to be this big record, what didn't quite pan out that way. And then I, all the guys that had come around around the same time as me or a little after before, like Danger Mouse and Kanye and people I knew were just like, their stars were going like that. So I just really got back to making the shit that I really, that I liked actually. I thought because, well, maybe this record, this stuff is never going to be big. My production stuff, I might as well make shit that I really dig. And I started to make some covers of some songs, Radiohead and whatever, because I would thought that would be fun to drop them in the DJ sets. And then one of them got put out in England and it was suddenly all over Radio One, Zane Lowe and Giles Peterson, all these influential DJs champing in it. So it was kind of insane. Like, and this was, it, it, you know, it's like the power of surrender, right? Like whenever you do something that you're just like, you let go of the expectation, the anxiety, and you just make something from a pure place. It doesn't happen a lot, but that's what, that's kind of where I went to. Um, and, uh, and then I met Lily and, uh, and then I met Amy and we just started working. The reason that that whole soulful Dat King sound really came about is because Amy played me her songs and we started to do these demos and that's what it called for. I was like, oh, and I had heard some Dat King stuff. I was working with Dave Guy, our friend in the horn section, but I had never worked with a whole band to do that stuff before. And I remember me and Amy had these little demos and I was like, hey, let me play this stuff by these guys, the Dap Kings. Maybe we can go record it with them. And I played it for Amy. She's like, yeah, it's the nuts. So if something was good, she said, it's the nuts. And, uh, <laughs> and, we, and we went in like, we went in like, tracked them down and they, and they played on it. So like, it was all a series of sort of, not accidents, but just like a, you know, like a kind of constantly like a choose your own adventure, all these different things open different doors. And that's what that led to that thing. I feel like you just laid out an amazing story of serendipity between these amazing, talented people. Obviously, Amy is a dynamite talent and you clearly just told us how she presented the, you both presented the vision for what she would become. Yeah. But what I'm going, what I'm leading to is, do you think stars are born or do you think they're created? I think that there's people that just have an innate God-given talent, like a voice or something that you just can't get around. And then you have the, uh, you have, you also have artists who are born with like maybe 60% of that talent of maybe like a megastar and Amy or a voice like that, but just like work it and they go to the fucking, they train their voice and they learn their chops and their music. So I think it's a bit, I think it can be both. I think that um, the superstars though, the people that really stand 
alone in that zone. Jay-Z, Kendrick, Amy, Adele, Beyonce, like they have something that like just the rest of us don't have. There's just something in there. There's sometimes it's not even just the actual technical talent, but it's just they radiate something, you know? They and and the thing is, is like I think about that time a lot. Uh, it's funny, Scott Schnee, who obviously we both know, has become really close with Jonathan Dickens, right? Oh, cool! So, yeah. so random. And John, and, then, and and I and I knew, obviously, when I heard his name right away, I was like, I know Jonathan Dickens. My God, yeah. it's a it's a Dell's manager, Gianni, and he's she's he's been with her forever, partner, manager, business partner. Um, but that time, you know, for you, obviously, you keep in touch with so many of those people, including like probably most of our artists. I speak to Wale and Daniel Merriweather, but it really felt like this like time that I seems like it wasn't even real. You know, like it's right when I got close with Jay-Z and John Manili and, you know, and we started uh, figuring out ways to work together with them. And, and they obviously became hip to what you were doing with Amy and we... It's I mean, just we like, have to tell the story. I'm going this. to. Oh, my oh, God. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. definitely going okay. to. But okay. I think about all those people like Seb Chu and what you did in in, um, in London when I would go out there and visit you and meet these incredible people. And Lily, I like loved Lily. I remember going out to the Hamptons and Lily like came and did this hosting with me. And then all of a sudden, like you just move on, like in my role. And I think about those times and like how we went through um, London and all your tours and shit. And what I will tell you, though is that like, again, you had this incredible, unique ability, which I didn't maybe understand as much back then, but there was a lot you were managing and it was a lot for someone at that point in your life. And I think that's what I meant earlier by like why our label couldn't ultimately go. And that's was the right way for this to all go down because that had to happen first. But you were really this orchestrator of people. You had all these different people on the bus that were like first time talent. I mean, the people that came through that studio that you're in now, back in that day, I mean, it was an incredible time, bro. Like we had J. Cole before he ever recorded, Wale before he, I mean, recorded like a real yeah, album. Yeah. Adele was in there. I mean, I reminded, I met Adele again a few months ago and I reminded her of like, and she knew like our relationship, yeah. obviously, but like, that time was just crazy. And I remember, obviously, it's when I started getting close with uh, Jay-Z. We did um, the mixtape for Fade to Black with Fader. Uh, shout out Fader, who you have your podcast with now, and we'll get to that later on. But Gianna, you got to hear this story. So I get to know John Manili, who was Jay's manager's time very well, and he was very supportive of me and, and introducing me to, to Jay. And, and it's how like so much of my life changed, that like next phase from Mark to those guys that really influenced me. So I say to Mark, like, yo, Jay said we can go by baseline. And Jay's known Mark at this point for 11 years. Like, he's been going to his parties. They've been out in the Hamptons together. And I say, yo, we got to go by baseline. I want you to talk to him. Like, we're talking about Daniel Merriweather. We're going to talk to him about Wale, Ryan Fest, just won Jesus Walks uh, Grammy. Mark's like, all right, cool. We'll go over there. We'll get there in a little bit. We stay to wait outside. Jay's not there yet. Jay gets out of the cab. I'm like, All right, wait, you know. I gotta do, I gotta do the story. I gotta All right, tell the story. story tell the story. Tell the story. Okay, just because it's even more cringy and embarrassing from my from my angle. So it, this was actually wasn't 2003. It was actually right after Amy and Back to Black had grown up. So I'd finally done something like big. Our artists were kind of looking like they were gonna the pop, and this whole thing. You were like, 
on the cab on the way there you're like listen i know you don't know to like to sell yourself that much but like this is like big shit we're gonna get into bed with them and just like say all this shit your my record was num currently the number two single in the uk that week like it couldn't have been any more popping my debut solo solo single uh all this other shit he was like just just say it just be like da -da -da. you've been in england you've been doing all this fucking shit you're killing it da -da -da. these records this record so we so we go to baseline and we go upstairs to the to the sixth floor wherever the studio is and then they're a little late so we decide i've already pictured where this whole thing's gonna go down on the pool table jay walks in i'm gonna give the big spill like rich wants and we decide to go back downstairs because they're not there yet and we want to have a cigarette so we're leaning against the scaffolding and then all of a sudden i can't remember was it a cab or a maybach or something pulls definitely up. not a cab it was yeah <laughs> it was yeah. a maybach for yeah. sure so the car pulls up and jay comes out and he's like he gives Richard Pan he's like hey and then he sees me and he's like genuinely like happy and he's like really smiling he's like yo man he's like good to see you, man like what's been going on and I can just feel like all like the things that I was gonna say and I can almost feel Rich's energy like next to me like stage mom like don't forget your line <laughs> and I and just everything just goes poof like out of my mind and I just go yeah I've been in England <laughs> <laughs> get out nothing That's, else nothing else and i remember jay was like like let's what's up like congrats and just like went upstairs and we, we were it was so crazy we frozen frozen bro and then even, we oh i mean even up to this point like rich and i could like call each other on the phone and I'd, like just say and just out of the blue just go i've been, been in, in england. england and like we can make each other <laughs> crack up for sure. been in england epic story i'm sure by the way i'm how many people you think had the deer in headlights like meeting hove for the first time had their thing and you were mark ronson but you froze so shit man yeah I, by the way i i probably would have too that's why i passed all the info to you in the cab i was the yeah. don i was don king but then i jumped yeah. out the ring yeah um let me talk personally a, a little bit about uh, your life at this point if you don't mind if anything yeah. gets too personal you let me know but yeah um you know, I got married relatively young. I mean, very young. And, um, and you know my wife, obviously. And while we still very much like networked together and I built my business and um, with Jana by my side, you were traveling all the time, right? And traveling and working in nightclubs, working in studios, working in nightclubs. And, you know, you had different relationships through the years. And each time, you know, I think the people close to you, myself, friends of yours, your family, like got excited, thought you had one because you're just this incredible guy, you know. And, you know, obviously your first uh, serious girlfriend was someone that I knew well and we all loved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that like simply put like the artist in you, you know, let's take there's no let's not get in any of the minutia, but that the artist in you um was just too laser focused, too locked in, too committed, um, like any entrepreneur at times, to really be able to do or be who you had to be to be in one of these relationships? I, I do. Now looking back on it and looking at the couple of really like healthy relationships, meaning people that were really good for me and really there for me and supportive that I wasn't able to, to kind of recognize at the time. I mean, you could say it, you could put it down to like, 
you know, you could say he was too young back then. That's what my dad will say or something. But I guess also if you go to a lot of therapy, you kind of unpack this stuff a little more, which I have done in the later period of my life. It's, it's sort of a little bit chicken before the egg. Cause it's like, well, was it, was I so, what did the relationships not work because I was so driven or was I so driven because I had a hole in my soul or psyche from something else? What was even driving me that much? Could, if I was slightly more aware of like the, you know, those workaholic tendencies became my like best friend and my worst enemy at the same time, because they were the things that drove me and that I was having success. So that's positive reinforcement for being a workaholic too. But I was also using it to run from shit. I was definitely using it because it was a crutch at times. So it's hard to let go of something that's it's it's like almost like being an addict. It's hard to let go of something that's had like positive reinforcement, positive energy for you, these workaholic tendencies. But at some point, if you do want to have a little bit of stability and balance in your life, you you have to learn. So I think it took me a really long time to figure out. And I'm grateful because the person I'm with now is just so fantastic and whatever had to happen to me to get to this point in life, I'm okay with, of course. But I don't I don't know like all that shit back then, like I was just kind of running through shit blind and 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 leaving some people quite hurt in my wake as well yeah um no that's very i'm i'm that's a really real answer bro and gianni as you know or may not know uh mark is engaged so um he obviously Congrats. is incredibly happy and i'm incredibly happy for him thank you but um i understand what you mean i understand what you mean because i do think that like you know there's no way to kind of question everything you did when you're younger, right? When you get older and there's no yeah. way not to question every like decision in your professional journey, you know, being married so long, I obviously don't question who I chose, but I question so much other of <laughs> so many other of my decisions. And I think back to it. And so much of it has to do with like, you may be this certain person outside or this certain level of confidence outside and this certain level of like success on the outside. But the truth is the, the self doubt and insecurity, you know, has you focusing sometimes on the wrong things, right? You just, you, your priorities get thrown off when you're feeling less than because you need some kind of like affirmation of some sort maybe and some kind of like feeling of achievement and like you can't then in turn give to somebody else. Um, I don't think that ever obviously happened to me in my relationships personally, like with a, a woman, but with friendships, you know, with family as you go. And I don't think it's anything that like anyone can avoid when they're chasing a certain something that they have. And, you know, there's different levels of these success stories. I'm meeting these people now, everybody different. There are some people that just take over the world in their early twenties, right? Like athletes, yeah. artists, tech CEOs that come up with ideas, Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm always thinking to myself, like, yo, do you want to know the level of, like, internal, like, strength and confidence you have to have to, to prosper at that level at such a young age? And looking back at how I was at a young age, I'm like, I could never, I don't even understand it. So my path and my journey is to, you know, keep trying to find what I want later in my life. You achieved a lot of great things early in your career, continuously in your career. 
But I did used to feel, looking back on it as a good friend, and we would talk honestly, there was this like self-deprecating, self-doubt at times a bit, or like you couldn't believe the people you met. And I think that's something very endearing and genuine about you. Mm -hmm. But a little bit of not even being aware of who you are, you know, like your self-awareness not being that you think you're too big, but your self-awareness of not even realizing like how much power and impact and greatness you had to have paused maybe, right? To have taken some time off, to have done X, Y, and Z. Do you think that played a part in it as well, just like not finding the real confidence in yourself yet? Well, I think there's there's two drives that we have, right? We're either driven by fear or desire. So fear, desire, being driven by desire, I mean, would be like the positive thing, being driven by the love of something, the, what, the need to protect family, the, like the positive emotions. And there's fear and like, you're not really aware that those things, it doesn't sound like fear, like, like I didn't, I wasn't afraid. So I took on producing a Bruno Mars record or something like that. But I'm sure a lot of those desires, those, those emotions, like if I don't do this, I won't stay on top where I'm going to give up my spot. And a lot of those times, um, yes, back to the thing that you were saying about being self-deprecating. I think that was a combination of my personality. I think that I didn't feel fully worthy of the success I was having. So it was easier to kind of like play it off or like maybe that's just like a bit of an English thing too. But yeah, that really, like I remember bruno once like sitting me down we we're just like sitting on the couch in the middle of like a 14-hour session probably when we were working on his album unorthodox jukebox and he just looked at me and was like it's like dude you're like you're mark fucking ronson like you gotta you you can act like it a little bit more like i think even for someone like bruno who's so like you're the star like puts up puts on this thing too not inauthentically but like that's his thing like it was even more like to him, like, why would you not just be like, I'm the fucking man, you know? Yeah. I just never felt normal. And I liked it also because I felt like the fact that I, I that I sold myself maybe a little short in my head also made me work harder. So again, here's this thing that I saw. Well, like, well, I'm doing well. So this must be working for me. Like whatever these mechanisms that keep me kind of like working on this slightly maniacal or unreasonable drive. And, and so it took me a really long time to just separate myself from that thought and just be like, maybe it's my talent is the reason I'm here and that it's good to have that drive and ambition and focus, but there's like a healthier way to have, to have both without having to like fucking self-flagellate or have no room for people in your life. Yeah, no, completely. And I think, you know, you have to also, then that, that entails pivoting and, and, and like little reinventions of yourself along the way, because at times you take on these monster projects at times you've been, like very aware of your brand and the great thing about you i think as an artist and dj and producer the older you get is the recognition of how long you've been doing it you know in sports as well it's like you get caught up in the moment but then when you step back and you start looking at the playing field you're like oh shit mark ronson's been doing this for 25 years right and with that comes this level of confidence but along the way you pivot you reinvent yourself and i think the last let's say 10 years of your career um as i've seen you get more confident and more in control of just like everything you moved back to la and you were living out there for a while and you produced these just like generational hits right you produced uptown funk with bruno mars you did shallow with lady gaga um, and while you were doing it you were doing like projects with Diplo and you 
worked with Duo Lipa and you just always know how to like do the right artists in the right places, keep your relevance in so many different places. But those moments in particular, Uptown Funk, Shallow, like that raised a new level of profile. Obviously you were aware of that. Mm -hmm. What did that kind of give you as a perspective and a look back now on your career and start to frame this next phase? Um, you've had pop hits, you've worked in hip hop, you've DJed every party in the world. Um, mm -hmm. You're obviously gonna keep working, you're young, you're 45 years old, but what did this whole era start to give you to, as a new perspective? I mean, I think, you know, there's something to be said you want to say it's all psychological and coming to this point of like acceptance with yourself. But listen, financial stability is a big fucking thing. Like money doesn't make you happy, but certainly knowing that you're, you're not going to fucking end up living in a trailer in Utica three months from now is helpful. And I thought that definitely having that, having some of the success, having enough to, I wish I could have achieved some of those, that some that self-confidence maybe without those things, maybe somebody who's a little bit more enlightened could but for me yes having suddenly like three or four records that are in the books right and whatever it is made me feel confident enough about where i was in my spot that i could take my foot off the gas maybe in a certain way and then um i don't know like yes i'm 45 like when i think about it i'm nearing the edges i mean i feel like if i was a cat it would be in my sixth sixth life of like pop relevance like being this old and still being able to exist in this world but uh, as for now there's i still love making music i still feel like when i come here in the day like i could still maybe my biggest hits are behind me like that's a practical thought to have but i can still come in here and make something that will excite me in a way that i've never heard that before and until that stops happening i could stop like playing an idea for a singer a young singer yeah or someone i'm working with and let them go like this like until that happens stops happening i've you know i've still fucking loved it love love this shit you know and and to that point not that you needed this but doesn't it give you solace that quincy produced thriller at 45 does doesn't that make you feel like you still got a lot left in the tank I, I'd, I'd like to think so. I mean, like we said earlier, production is one of those things that like, it doesn't matter. You can be older, your face isn't on the front of the record. You know, the advent of technology and, you know, production being more driven by like Ableton and fucking having crazy trap drums as opposed to like having a huge understanding of the orchestra and the things that maybe you used to have to train to, to get there. It does change the landscape a little bit. I've also like doing this Apple TV show and, you know, doing the podcast with Fader and stuff. There are other things now that maybe when I was a little more like obsessed, like I gotta be the fucking biggest guy, keep my spot. Like now I would have not had the time or the focus to do those kind of things. And now I think that like, that's, that's something that's more interesting to me and just being practical and like, kind of like divulging a little. So let's get into, you know, we tease the pod, we tease the Apple show now, you have a record label, you're back at our old studios. I wish you would call it the Alito Studios still, but I assume for branding you have to change it. Um, it's always Alito in my heart, Rich. That's all that matters. Um, our logo was the Nick Colors. Um, we'd have to, obviously, for the next 10 years, have to change those colors to black and white if you were going to make it an Alito logo. Um, but give me, beyond getting 
engage. Give me the kind of state of Mark Ronson's business right now and what you're working on um, and, what yeah. you're and what you're excited about. Yeah. So, I mean, I still think no matter what, the main thing that dominates my life or that makes me excited and I still think of myself as someone who makes music. Obviously, the pandemic and everything really slowed DJing down anyway, which was kind of nice because I think that if something hadn't really happened, like for to force me to stop getting on a plane three times a week to chase a check or whatever it was going on, I'm not those the gigs at the festivals and stuff are so much fun. And sometimes you are playing like a giant corporate thing for like G Cloud or whatever that things are called. That like people are having a great time. I still love a DJ making a room of five thousand people happy because i came from that i don't have an ego now that well now i'm a producer like i'm above playing other people's music and making people have a good time but i was glad to not have to travel uh this past year and it's definitely like reframe like i don't i don't quite want to go back to that lifestyle of the djing part but yeah dj i mean producing records making my own records producing records for other people the label that we have uh with you know harley who was our intern when we had alito Shout out um, Harley Wertheimer, shout, Harley Wertheimer. Shout, shout out Harley. The, you know, the TV show, I have a TV show vaguely about my, like, based on my life or coming up, uh, based, uh, going up in New York City uh, with Fox and we have uh, this Apple TV show that's coming on July 30th on Apple Plus, which is a six-part documentary series about how, making music with everyone from McCartney to Too Short to T-Pain to Tame Impala to Dave Grohl to DJ Premier, our friend Wale. Um, it's re I'm really excited that. Sounds about incredible. That. that sounds incredible. That sounds incredible. Six yeah. episode series? Yeah. So I did this TED Talk. You remember, you were there it went about sampling. And Kim Rosenfeld, who was running the nonfiction department at Apple Plus when they launched, came to me and he says, I want to do a show. I don't know what it is, but I want to make something like what you did about sampling, like an educational about music and, re and the music that we love, that lifting the curtain in a way like I didn't know that I really cared that much about sampling or that I could understand it before I watched your TED Talk and then realized how it's the common thread through a lot of shit that I love. So he introduced me to Morgan Neville, this incredible documentarian who made 20 Feet from Stardom and Won't You Be My Neighbor and Ugly Delicious and all these great shows. And he's, we dreamt up this show together, six episodes, distortion, reverb, synths, samplers, drum machines, and auto-tune. And we would kind of like explain why those were things that revolutionized contemporary pop and hip hop music. And before they came out, there was nothing like them. And that a lot of other very nice human themes came out of it, like all these happy accidents and usually new technology comes and people hate it and they're afraid that it's going to disrupt the entire old school way until somebody uses it in the wrong way. And then everyone goes, he's a genius. And then that changes everything like Prince with the drum machine um, and uh, everything. So these are all like these wonderful um kind of more human themes that also come through the show and everybody goes and T-Pain explains why like he heard a weird now that's what I call music ad on TV in this way that JLo's voice sounded he was like I gotta find that software and when I find it that's gonna be the sound of what I do and then he thereby changes the course of fucking pop music really um a lot of yeah a lot of uh really interesting stories and shit that you know I guess yeah no, that sounds incredible. And when can we expect that show? That's July 30th, six episodes on Apple Plus. It's called Watch the Sound. Amazing. Um, 
And what's this podcast with our friends Rob Stone, John Cohen, and the Fader yeah. guys? So the Fader. Shout out know, Rob Stone. Shout out Rob Stone. The Fader, you know, we've always, um, even from the early Alito days, Rob and John were big supporters. Uh, when I used to do my authentic shit radio show, the Fader show was like always right before me. Like they were always like a lot cooler than what I was because they were always like so cutting edge and the hippest new thing or whatever, but always family. And Rob came to me and he was like, we want to do, we've never done a music interview show and we want to do something where we only take people that have been on the cover of The Fader. And the interesting thing about The Fader, you know, they have a really good batting average of putting someone on just before they break. And usually 80% of the people they've had on it fucking still massive today. Uh, Drake, MIA, Sam Smith, whoever. Um, so, so he's like, we want you to interview everybody. And I always like the running joke that usually comes up in every interview is that like, I was never cool enough to be in the fader, but now I'm like cool enough at least to do this interview show. And it's <laughs> been really wonderful because I mean, so far we've done Questlove, David Byrne, Tame Impala, Haim, Rico Nasty. Um, and it's fun because some of the people I have relationships with and I've worked with myself, but either way, like, I study the shit out of it. I do the deep dive. I want to make sure that like there's plenty of interesting things I learned the hard way over the first couple of episodes, like what works and what it's interesting and what isn't. And it's just been, it's just a fun other way to just like exercise a different part of my brain, the kind of nerdy, like the same kid that was working at Rolling Stone at 12 and writing for the high school newspaper, you know? Completely, man. That's, that's how I feel um, doing this, but this podcast was different, and um, I will say, you know, I lecture uh, nobody a lot. Like Gianni has to listen to me, just like to say my like philosophies on life a lot, as you know. Um, but I will say, uh, the pandemic like made a lot of things clear. One thing that was clear beyond everyone knowing the family was important, everyone knowing that career and having a passion and loving what you love is important. But friendships, like real friends, people that like thick and thin type friends, and they're few and far between, those sh shine through. And Mark, you are my guy, bro. This was a lot of fun. I love you, bro. I love your whole family. I'm excited for you. We've just had the most insane memories. And looking back on like that era in life, it like, I honestly felt like, you know, our own movie, man. It was crazy, like the things, and it feels now so distant, but I remember everything more now than ever. So I wanna thank you for walking us through all of this. Um, you know, it's always amazing to talk to you. And, you know, this was a lot of fun. Man, <laughs> I was just thinking all the things like, I mean, Johnny, also your dad was such, talk about people like picking you out and believing it. You're like, your dad was one of those people for me. Like he was the one of the people that like took me like fucking shopping. Like when Puffy decided he wanted to take me DJing in Paris and like your dad was like, come on, we're going to get you some nice clothes. And he took me to like the Versace store and there was a jacket there. And I was like, I didn't even know clothes could cost that much. He's like, you need this. <laughs> You need yeah. this. This looks fly on you. Um, he was the one that instilled all that faith in Dom, who then saw it in me. But Rich, like our fucking memories, like you were there. You like you were there to adopt my first dog because my girlfriend <laughs> at the time was not an American citizen and she couldn't adopt the dog she wanted to give me for my birthday. All the stories, all the places we've been. You were there with me when I 
bought my engagement ring for you know the first time i ever got engaged like uh, like everything up to now and being the godfather of bella it's just it's so wonderful to just know that like you're always gonna be in my life like that a hundred man i love you bro thank you so much send my best to everyone in your fam and we will speak soon goodbye boys later mark So Gianni, that was an incredible time, um, exactly how I imagined it would be. It's amazing um, when you get to have somebody on that you're close to and you can learn so much about, um, but know so much about. Um, I'm sure you probably learned a lot. Yeah, for sure. Mark's just been an incredible, incredible uh, incredible presence in the music industry um, for the last 20 some odd years. and. Like I said, an incredible friend. So once again, boardroom out of office with my man Gianni Harrell. This is podcast number 46. Please download and subscribe and keep going to boardroom.tv and keep subscribing. Peace, y'all. Later. Later.